the sound of impeachment in Brazil. Members of Congress sing their goodbyes to President Rousseff, but the president vows to fight on. We'll have the details and analysis next on Latin Pulse. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, it's what our program does best, analyze politics from impeachment in Brazil to the upcoming presidential race in the Dominican Republic. But first, Brittany Madison has more about impeachment and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Brazil's Chamber of Deputies voted to impeach President Dilma Rousseff this week. The lower house of Brazil's Congress needed a two-thirds vote to begin the process of removing Rousseff from office. Conservative Bruno Arujo cast the deciding vote. What the honor? From my voice will come the scream of hope for millions of Brazilians. We carry on with our struggle for freedom and democracy. So I vote yes for impeachment. Yes for the future of Brazil. Brazil's Senate is now considering how it will take up the impeachment case. Political leaders in Brazil say they expect the Senate to vote on whether to hold a formal trial for Rousseff sometime next month. Congress has accused Rousseff of hiding fiscal problems and spending from them as a part of her tactics to gain re-election. Rousseff pledges to fight the charges. We will have more about impeachment in Brazil later on this program. An earthquake and its aftershocks have devastated Ecuador, leaving more than 570 people dead and thousands injured with hundreds of people still reported missing in the country's northwest coastal region. The quake registered 7.8 on the Richter scale. Rescue crews continue to dig survivors out of the wreckage. Although now, most of the work is in to recover bodies before they cause disease. President Rafael Correa ordered 14,000 troops and police officers into the hardest hit zones to help with disaster reliefs and to stop looters. Correa says damage from the quake will cost at least $3 billion to repair, and he vowed to seek new loans from China and the World Bank to finance reconstruction. Mexico's president says he's ready for Mexicans to have more legal access to marijuana. President Enrique Peña Nieto says he will support marijuana reforms. The reforms will allow people to have a legal limit of 28 grams of marijuana. He also wants to make it easier for Mexicans to get medicine that use marijuana as a main ingredient. The president's remarks came at this week's United Nations Drug Policy Summit in New York City. Currently, Mexicans can carry five grams of marijuana legally. The president says he wants to shift Mexico's drug policies to allow the controlled use of some recreational drugs instead of the tight anti-drug restrictions of the past. The president of Honduras announced he is forming a special commission to deal with links between the national police and drug gangs. Last week, the foreign minister of Honduras resigned because he was linked to the growing police corruption scandal. Investigative reports have revealed recently that a group of high-ranking police officers were assassinating anti-drug officials at the request of drug lords. President Juan Orlando Hernandez promises the commission will work to reform the national police and bring those working with drug gangs to justice. When it comes to beauty pageants, it seems contestants with attitude should not apply, at least not for the Miss Universe contest. Case in point, Crystal Lee Caride, who until recently was Miss Puerto Rico and a contestant for the Miss Universe competition. Pageant organizer stripped Caride of her title after she was quoted in an interview saying she did not like cameras. Caride claims pageant organizers argued with her about what she could wear at personal appearances after she had a medical procedure. 
Well, now Caride is showing the organizers how much attitude she really has. She's suing them for $3 million, claiming emotional distress. She says the organizers still haven't delivered the car she won as a part of her pageant prize, nor have they given her the seven-day all-expense cruise that was also part of her prize package. For Latin Pulse, I'm Brittany Madison. Thanks, Brittany. As Brittany told us earlier, this historic week in Brazil leaves President Dilma Rousseff fighting for her political life. Although she still has the support of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, President Lula, and the rest of the Workers' Party, Brazil's center-left governing party. But their one-time coalition partners, the PMDB, the party known as the Brazilian Democratic Movement, seems to be positioning itself to take control. If the Senate approves impeachment, Vice President Michel Temer of the PMDB will at least temporarily step in as president. Once again, we asked Matthew Taylor at American University to help us sort out the intricacies of impeachment. Taylor is the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. We asked him what he thought of President Rousseff's argument that there's no legal basis for impeachment. It's a great question, and I think it's the biggest question in Brazil right now, partly because it will frame the discussion in the Senate. Uh, the Rousseff administration is making the argument that you suggest, even going so far as to claim that it's a golpe, a coup d'etat. Um, and, you know, certainly they're correct in, to the extent that this is unprecedented. Impeachment um, on the grounds that this impeachment petition was made on would be unprecedented. Those grounds are fiscal grounds. Um, on the other side, though, uh, there's an argument that while the politics of this may be unpalatable, the institutional rules have been followed and impeachment has, in fact, been used correctly, even if we disagree with uh, the, the foundations for that impeachment. And um, you may have seen in the New York Times historian José Murilo de Carvalho, who is a, a, a noted historian of Brazil, um, made exactly this argument saying, you know, we may not enjoy or, or agree with the motivation for impeachment, but it has been carried forward in accordance with the law. Uh, and certainly, I think that, that there's an argument to be made that the Supreme Federal Tribunal, Brazil's high court, has been accompanying this. It has heard several cases related to the impeachment and so far uh, has not uh, struck down any of the, the impeachment process. So uh, at this point, I think that this is a debate that will not be resolved and, and uh, one's response to this debate, I think, is, is largely a predictor of how one stands on, on impeachment and the removal of the president. As you mentioned, unpalatable politics, and so politics do inform this particular process. President Rousseff says that she is being held to a different standard, a higher standard than other presidents in the past who may have done the same sort of fiscal changes um, to uh, elude congressional oversight. But uh, couldn't it also be argued that that in a wider democracy, uh, if you are going to mislead your Congress as a president, you're going to open yourself up to impeachment? Now, I know she certainly has the support of former President Lula, 
And we've also seen uh, other former presidents uh, come to her aid. Uh, Enrique Cardoso uh, uh, said that he thinks the impeachment process is is wrong. So um, this is this is really the debate: is, is is she being held to a higher standard? And one might ask: Is she being hi- held to a higher standard not just because she's part of the Workers' Party, but maybe because she's a woman? You know, I think that that Rousseff, on the one hand has been criticized for misleading not only on the fiscal front, but also in her re-election campaign, a very hard-fought re-election campaign in 2014, when uh, she claimed that the opposition, first under Marina Silva and then under uh, Aesio Neves, that either one of those candidates was going to take away the social programs that the Workers' Party uh, has claimed credit for, um, that they would bring the kind of uh, austere policies of the neoliberal 1990s back. This was was seen as a major break in, with past electoral rhetoric. And when Rousseff came in and early in her second term actually began to undertake some of the cuts and tried to push through some of the tax increases that she had threatened that the opposition would undertake, this was a major uh, blow uh, to her to her credibility and to a certain extent to her legitimacy. Uh, on the opposition side, though, you know, I think it's important to point out that impeachment was carried out by a Congress in which 60% of sitting representatives are facing some sort of uh, criminal charge. And this deeply undermines the legitimacy of the legislative branch. And so, you know, there, there are plenty of arguments and counterarguments on both sides. But ultimately, impeachment is always more of a political process than a legal process. And uh, what we're seeing right now is that Dilma, through for a number of reasons, some that have to do with the circumstances of the world economy, some that have to do with how Brazil's economy is suffering, but some that also have to do with her political skills or, or difficulty in managing the coalition, have added up into to a situation in which 71% of Congress voted against her, um, surpassing the threshold needed uh, for impeachment. I'd like to talk about those next steps, but because we're talking about unpalatable politics, uh, one of the charges that have gone forward in the in the past week or so is that President Rousseff has said that her vice president is actually behind this this coup that she sees as part of the impeachment process. And so, if she is even removed temporarily, we'll see Michelle Temer. Uh, the vice president, um, taking her role for, for some months, if not permanently, to the end of her term. And, and does not Temer, too, also have some issues in front of him? That's right. That's right. And so when, when Brazilians are asked uh, for who they would like as president in spontaneous polls, uh, only 2% actually mentioned Temer. So he's not a, a, a highly successful national politician, although he has been an extraordinarily successful legislative manager and, and very good uh, in pulling together coalitions. 
but he too is is deeply unpopular. You know, Rousseff is at about ten percent approval right now. Temer is only a little bit better than that at sixteen percent. And I think most markedly, one of the problems that Temer faces is that even pro-impeachment demonstrators, uh, people who were out on the streets Sunday calling for Rousseff's removal, um, only even among them, 54% were in favor of Temer being impeached as well. So um, he, he comes, um, if he is brought in as interim president, uh, or even as a permanent replacement for Rousseff, his legitimacy is quite low. And this is uh, perhaps exacerbated by the fact that for all intents and purposes, his vice president following the constitutional um, succession, line of succession will be Eduardo Cunha, the scandal-ridden uh, president of the Chamber of Deputies. Tell us, though, a little bit more about Temer and his corruption problems. Well, um, in fact, one of the plea bargaining witnesses in the car wash investigation, which is all an outcome of the scandal at Petrobras, uh, has linked him to an illegal ethanol pricing scheme. Um, this is only one allegation, of course, and one witness uh, but but there is that allegation out there, and there have been other allegations in the past. Without getting into personal corruption, I, you know, there are these allegations. Uh, I think it's sufficient to note that, you know, Temer has been a very, very savvy operator in a political um, system that operates on the base, uh, basis of horse trading. So whether it is formally corruption or, or merely, um, you know, informal negotiation, uh, this is somebody who is deeply embedded in the coalition formation process in Brazil, which is, uh, you know, of course, caught up in the Petrobras scandal and demonstrated by the Petrobras scandal. You mentioned earlier that 71% of the Chamber of Deputies voted against President Rousseff, voted for the impeachment process to go forward. And so now it goes to the Senate. Any chance that the Senate will say no and stop the process? Or are we about to, to go into the trial period that the Senate will put forward? The Senate special committee uh, that's been created to uh, tackle this is uh, meeting this week. We expect to have all the members of the committee named by Friday, and they can begin their work of reading through this and putting together uh, a judgment on it. Uh, and the, the goal is to take it to a vote in the plenary by mid-May. Uh, the date is still uncertain. This vote would be a simple majority vote. I think at this point in time, there is almost certainty that uh, the simple majority of the Senate will vote in favor of accepting the impeachment from the Chamber of Deputies. And if they do this, Rousseff will be removed for 180 days. Temer will become interim president until the, the trial is over. I think that there is still considerable uncertainty about what will happen in a trial in the Senate. Right now, um, doing some back of the envelope calculations based on the results in the Chamber of Deputies, it looks like two-thirds of the Senate would vote against Rousseff. But there's a lot of water that has to go under the bridge before that vote takes place. 
And it's important to remember a couple of different things that will be happening in those 180 days. Um, the first is that Temer will be governing. That can be positive in attracting allies, but it can also lead to discord. And certainly in the horse trading culture that Temer is acquainted with, um, there are many opportunities for allies to, to grow disgruntled. The, the second thing that will be going on, of course, is that the Lava Jato investigation continues to move forward. It continues to uh, dominate the news cycle. And we've seen uh, revelations uh, in recent months that make life difficult for the PMDB and many of those who would be Temer's allies. So, uh, you know, I think that the ground is still unstable beneath Brazil's feet, and um, it's too early to make any kind of judgment about whether uh, Rousseff will be removed. Of course, Rousseff herself is also going to be working uh, to push back against uh, this possibility. And then you have uh, another force, another political force, which is Marina Silva, the, the woman who ended uh, the 2014 election in third place. And Marina Silva, looking at Dilma facing charges and Temer facing charges and the Speaker of the House, uh, Eduardo Cunha, facing charges, Marina Silva has, has uh, suggested that it, it would be a good time to be thinking about just holding brand new elections for all executive positions in Brazil. So, um, you know, I doubt that that would go forward. But you do have these many different processes that are happening, uh, and they're happening independent of each other. Lava Jato is completely independent of the Senate. Uh, this call for new elections is completely independent of the Senate as well. And I think it's too early for us to predict how this will all shake out. Thank you so much. Matthew Taylor of American University, the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability, joining us on Latin Pulse again via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Coming up, more politics, this time sorting through the presidential race in the Dominican Republic. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Next month, voters in the Dominican Republic will cast their ballots in a presidential race. President Danilo Medina is running for re-election but he faces at least half a dozen challengers. We asked Jeb Sprague at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to help us analyze the race. Sprague is the author of Paramilitarism and the Assault on Democracy in Haiti. He joined us via Skype from Goleta, California. The, the political system in, in the Dominican Republic, it's very complicated. And when we look at the, the electoral <coughs> situation, we really need to also look at it how, how it intersects with this, this restructuring that's occurring through globalization, so the social, political, and, and economic restructuring, um, the, the two major political parties, the, the uh, PRD and the PLD, both of these parties are um, deeply oriented towards 
intensifying the, the Dominican Republic's insertion into the global economy, you know, and very much tied to large uh, uh, transnational business con conglomerates and things. So the, the PLD definitely has um, <clears throat> much, more, um, much more money much more um, power on the ground. The advertisements are um, billboards are all over the country, T-shirts. So a very strong clientelistic network. So uh, just so we can, we can help with some of the complexity here, as you mentioned, um, several major parties, President Medina uh, represents the PLD. Um, who's running for the PRD or who's running for some of these other parties that – that have any chance against this incumbent president? So the most recent poll, polling shows Medina quite a bit ahead, um, anywhere from 50 to 55, upwards of 60%, against uh, Lu Luis Abinader, who is the candidate for the, the, the PRM, which is sort of a, a newer version of, well, a, a lot of the older PRD has transitioned into this PRM. So essentially, so changing their name, from the Partido Revolucionario um, Dominicano to Partido Revolucionario Moderno. This new party, Luis Abinader, when he first joined, you know, entered the electoral arena, you know, he's very much seen as, as, as cleaner, not, not connected with any corruption, whereas Medina, there's a lot of uh, uh, linkages to corruption with, within his government. And so when the PRM, when it's this... this the other major electoral force in the country, when um, they started off, there there was this idea of La, uh, La Convergencia, which was sort of like a coalition of some of the old PRD people and um, other smaller political parties and some social movements. And so there was an idea that it might lead to some sort of progressive force, but it's actually gone in the, in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, last year... Um, Abinader, they, they made an alliance with the PRSC, which is this, you know, this, this right-wing party, the old Baligarista party. Abinader, a few years ago, you know, he, he was saying, he was criticizing Medina's policy towards um, undocumented Haitian migrants, and he was taking a very, he was taking a good stance. But now he's pulled a complete 180. Um, Abinader is trying to appeal to the the far right in the country saying things like when he's president, there will be no illegals on the streets. I, I would like to clarify when we talk about immigration and unauthorized immigration in the Dominican Republic, we're primarily talking about concerns for Haitians who are coming across the border. Yeah. So, so migration or the, the exportation of, of labor, this has really become a uh, global, a transnational phenomenon in the, in the last few decades. I mean, you can look at the growth of remittances from, uh, you know, tens of millions, if you go back to the 1970s, to now it's, you know, billions of dollars flo uh, flowing into, into these countries from, from migrants that, that move abroad. So Haitians going into the Dominican Republic um, many business sectors in the Dominican Republic really rely on the exploitation of this cheap um, migrant labor. And so they're really an, a super exploited part of the population, both as like a, as a negatively racialized group, but also a group of working class people with no, with no documentation. So they can, you know, be rounded up 
or uh, repressed or threatened with, you know, getting kicked out of the country. So it's very hard then for them to organize for better conditions or to organize with local Dominicans. There's around um, 200,000 or pro- probably more Haitian migrants migrants in the country. Actually, a lot more and people that are, uh, you know, that have roots roots in Haiti. It's so problematic to describe, you know, one country is Haitian and you know, all the people's Haitian, the other country is Dominican. These are, right, like social constructs of, you know, the modern nation state and of, you know, these ideas of, of race that we, that we know that aren't rooted in, in biology or any, any, any scientific fact. So, I mean, these are, these are human beings, and so we really need to think of the human condition. In both countries, there's around, there's around uh, the population is around 10.5, give or take, a million in the Dominican Republic and, and about the same in Haiti. And this is, a, this, is a, this is an island, the island of Hispaniola, that's the same size as the state of Maine in the United States. So it's a, it's a small place for, for that number of people. And so then the real problem is how, you know, are, are, are working and lower, lower income people, how are, are they going to work to and get together to improve their conditions? Or is there going to be this sort of elite run um, uh, project on, on, on the island? Danilo Medina, the current president, is polling uh, beyond uh, 50% uh, in the mid-50 range. Uh, um, you have to I believe you have to get 51% of the vote to win in the first round. Um, if those polls hold, uh, it looks like an easy re-election bid for the current president. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Most people that I speak to think that, yeah, he, he will be re-elected. I mean, the, the, the PLD has done an excellent job in uh, buying off smaller parties when there's factions that come about and you know, like when the when the PRD turned to the PRM, some factions of the PRD split off and joined Danilo's government. Beyond the complexity, though, of the party makeup, it sounds like from some of your comments that that race is also an issue that is underneath the surface of this particular election. So, yeah, race and gender and, and all these issues. So just uh, on March 8th, there were like 70 grassroots organizations that were protesting in Santo Domingo for uh, rights of Dominican women of Haitian descent, of sex workers, of LGBT, an LGBT collective. And so there, there are these mass, there's mass protest movements, you know, against, against mining. So lower income neighborhoods, there are movements in, in these neighborhoods and, uh, and the issue of race and people being of Haitian descent, that this is important because ever, I mean, ever since the founding of the Dominican Republic, there's been these attempts by elites to basically portray the Dominican political, the foundation, the, the, the ethos of the country is, ba- is basically the opposite to Haiti, is the opposite to, you know, this, this African country on their, on their border this ingrained idea that that you get in part of the political establishment that really try to portray themselves as so different. And and it's something that's very uh, uh, harmful and, 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 and difficult for um, some sort of emancipatory project to take hold. It creates a lot of barriers for people to work together. Also, uh, one other thing I wanted to add is that 
USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, they heavily finance uh, uh, political cadre in the country, especially from the PRD and PLD. So there's like key figures that go for, you know, quote unquote, democratic training. um, And this is similar to a lot of other Caribbean countries. So, you know, providing, giving them even more resources a lot of the leaders of these parties went to Ivy League schools, like Abi Nader, Lionel Fernandez, the former president um, of the uh, PLD prior to Medina. Um, so there's all these, you know, wealthy, well-resourced um, connections, family and business connections that really are, are central in, in driving uh, Dominican politics. Thank you so much, Jeb Sprague of the University of California, Santa Barbara the author of Paramilitarism and the Assault on Democracy in Haiti, joining us via Skype from Goleta, California, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You could find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, you can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Brittany Madison and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Mm-hmm.